Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina has hundreds of pet food recipes that are made without artificial flavors or preservatives and is striving for 100% recyclable or reusable packaging by 2025 so that they can help make the world a better place. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Halahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 24th. Today, the unique challenges of being a Black police officer and how movie theaters are trying to adjust to the pandemic. My name is Martiz Gilliam. I'm currently co-founder and a founding trainer at Brawl Studio, which is a boxing and yoga studio. And I currently live in Maplewood, New Jersey. I'm ex-police officer for the Plainfield Police Department in New Jersey. We wanted to talk to Martiz because he's dealt with something that you don't hear about very often. What it's like to straddle the line between being a Black police officer and also experiencing brutality at the hands of police. Growing up, you know, my friends didn't look at police as being people that really served our community. What was your first experience with police? My first experience with police was when I was a young kid and my father became a police officer and I was really young as well. I looked at him as a hero in my eyes. He was that officer that everybody knew their name and it felt like he knew everybody's name in town. And that was where I wanted to go in my career. And from your interactions with police officers where you were living, but also with, with the fact that your dad was a police officer, how did you feel about police as a kid? Well, it was a little conflicted because as a kid, my mom and the rest of my family pretty much you know, raised me to be respectful of police, make sure that you're non-threatening because of what police may do because of being a black uh, male. But I also see my father as a police officer and being a dare officer and being of service in his community. And so from that kind of conflicted view about who police officers were and are, how did you decide that you wanted to become a police officer? Seeing my dad and also my uncle was a police officer and seeing their friends in law enforcement, I looked at them as being kind of like the hometown heroes. And I always wanted to be of service. So I thought that this, hey, this would be one way. It's the opportunity that presented itself. And it'd be one way that I can be of service. thought that I could make a change by going into the police department and serving my community. And when you made that decision, did you have friends or family members even who were like, why, why are you doing this? You know what cops can be like. Why do you want to be one of them? Yeah, my mother was actually, she was really afraid of me becoming a police officer. She didn't think that I should be a police officer, given the culture of policing in this country. And, you know, she just thought that, you know, I didn't need to be around it and that I would start to take on maybe a personality or be impacted by the culture of the police department. Were you worried about that, too, that being a part of a police department could change who you were? Absolutely. And I also was afraid of, you know, how people may look at me. Because there's like more fear-based, fearful of police officers and like, you know, they were the oppressors. So why go be one of the oppressors? <laughs> why go be a, a police officer? 
Martise joined the Plainfield Police Department in 2009. I was young. I was, I was 23, I believe, when I got in the police department. And I was excited. I had scored pretty high on the test. And um, I was also a young dad, became a father at 20. Uh, and I was like, hey, this is going to be an opportunity for me to have a real career, be of service in the community and, you know, make a good living for myself and to take care of my child. So I was really excited going into the police academy. The excitement around, you know, your name being in a newspaper and getting sworn in City Hall and the mayor being there. And so I really felt, you know, important. So I used to like working the mornings and say good morning to um, the business owner. And, uh, you know, having a seat and saying hi to everyone. That was like, you know, some of the best parts that I remember being a police officer. So how did your relationship with being a police officer start to change? It started changing, actually, right from the beginning. Once we got into the police academy, our lead instructor of the academy, he comes out and like his whole militant gear BDU pants, high boots. Uh, it's not the, the regular police uniform. It's this huge hat on and yelling for everybody to get in formation, get in line. And then you got other officers inside once you get inside and they're yelling in your face, trying to intimidate you and trying to break the ones that they're saying like, oh, everybody's not going to be strong enough to be the, you know, be here. So they immediately start started with like training to be like this warrior or crime fighter and start instilling like this us versus them type of mindset, immediately starting with, you know, like videos of seeing other officers killed in, in the line of duty. Wait, they, they show those to you in, in the academy? Yeah. Why? Just to like traumatize people or? For training to like how you approach car stops. So like if you do this wrong, this is what could happen to you. You could get shot just like this other officer. Right. So they try to use these videos as training to say, hey, this is where he made a mistake or this is where he was too comfortable here. They're instilling fear from the beginning. And that's what is, you know, it's overemphasized throughout the training. So how did you get to a point where you were considering leaving this job? I was at a nightclub in New Jersey and with friends celebrating life. Somebody was having a birthday. We were leaving out the club. So I get to my vehicle, get into the vehicle and I pull out of the spot so I can pull over to where my friends were. Shortly after that, someone walks by and spits into my car. I get out of my vehicle, out of the driver's side, and I, I, I go to approach the, the officer. And the officer was like, I didn't want you to get out of your effing car. <laughs> That's the first thing he says. And I was like, hey, well, did you see what just, just happened? He was like, I don't care about that. I told you not to get out of your effing car. Like He just was so concerned on like, you're not listening to what I'm saying right now. So I'm like, I have a complaint. Um, I need service. And he starts cursing and I'm like, Hey, listen, I'm on a job as well. There's most, most officers, police officers, law enforcement, firemen. If they're talking to somebody, a fellow officers that works on the same job, they say, Hey, I'm on a job as well. And then I went on to say, I'm a police officer. Cause you were hoping to like, kind of set things straight and be like, look, I'm not trying to start anything. I'm just I, like, let me just tell you where I'm coming from. Right. I just wanted him to be present, you know, kind of pull back a little bit on how he was coming at me. Cause I'm like, all right, like I'm one of the, like, you know, for lack of better words, I'm a black guy. That's a cop. Like maybe you can see me for that. I'm not one of the 
guys off the street that you're just about to go off on. Which I feel like in and of itself is just so, says a lot about the situation that you have to be like, look, I'm not just a regular black guy walking around. I'm a black police officer. So you should treat me with more respect than the respect that you tend to give regular black dudes walking around. You know, that that's even that is like messed up in and of itself. Right. Right. So that's what exactly what I was doing. He never looked at my badge and he just looked me up and down. I remember looking at down at my feet and looking at me and frowning his face. And he was like, I don't give a F. And he was like, you're going to jail. It was like his ego was saying, this black man is speaking back to me. I gave him orders. I don't want you to talk to me. You're going to jail right now. I don't care who you are. And he said, I don't care. He's like, yeah, F and going. And then two white officers being really aggressive. I wasn't resisting. One officer grabbed my arm. Another one grabbed my arm. They're putting me in handcuffs. One is ready to already start saying, stop resisting. <laughs> like I'm being tugged in two different directions by two officers. And that's also in the training too. You know, I was trained. If you're going to arrest someone, make sure you're, you're yelling, stop resisting. And I remember them saying like the worst thing that was created for police officers and a guy raised up a cell phone. He was like, these things, cameras. He's like, so make sure that you're creating like a perimeter around the person and you're screaming, stop resisting. Is, is it weird like being on both sides of this thing at the same time where you're like being arrested and you also know like these are exactly all the things you're trained to do when you're arresting someone? You're like, is this actually happening? And you're seeing the steps, like all the steps of the training, like start to happen right in front of you. And it's like, this is what happens. This is what they taught in training. And you're realizing that they're on autopilot. They're not even present to who I am. So they put the handcuffs on me and um, one officer's holding one arm, another officer's holding the other arm. And we are walking over to a police vehicle that's behind my vehicle, probably two car spaces. I get my head slammed against the roof of the car. So I, I have my right leg and my left leg is dangling out of the, the vehicle and they, they, they're like pushing me in. I wasn't moving fast enough. So then they slam the door on my left leg, my left shin. I scream out in pain. I stand up and with the handcuffs on and I'm like, why are you doing this to me? I can't believe it. And I'm like, what is going on? They start punching me all over my body, my head, my neck, my back, my sides. I'm screaming recorded. This happened about 10 years ago in 2010. So this is before like Instagram, it was before live videos, it was before a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a lot of stuff like people were thinking to pull out their phones to record. So they were like creating this perimeter around me. I can see them like a bunch of officers standing around while a number, probably seven officers are punching on me, placing their, their, their foot on my head while I'm on the ground um, just to hold me there while somebody else mace me in the face. For the record, the police officers who were involved in this incident dispute Martise's description of what happened that night. Ultimately, Martise was arrested and later charged. A jury found him not guilty of assault on an officer and resisting arrest, though a trial judge did find him guilty of driving while intoxicated. He testified that he had had three drinks that night, and he still denies the charge. Later on, Martise actually sued the township of Bloomfield for excessive force, and he settled the lawsuit. And after all of that, he went back to work at the Plainfield Police Department. I made a choice to leave because 
I didn't know if I can, if I can take it emotionally, mentally. And I came back and I was there for three years and it was a rough three years because I found myself avoiding all of my peers, not wanting to be inside the police department at all, only wanting to be outside in the public, which is not realistic. Like I got to go inside at some point. And I didn't want to become that officer that's constantly just going to paper on, on everything that I see and very little change happens. And then sometimes you see retaliation and you're suspended or demoted or fired. Martise decided to leave the police department in 2015. And I didn't want to put my livelihood in jeopardy. Wow. It sounds like if you had this original plan or, or hope that you could be a force for change among police, that that experience kind of showed you that, no, that that's not it's not possible to like change it from the inside, but that you either have to like figure out how you're going to align yourself with how the police department works, or you just have to leave because there's not really any there there isn't really a a significant way to change it from the inside. There's many officers I've witnessed. Even my father, being one, made it all the way up to captain, or and he was an acting director for a while. And by the time, like, I, I hear their stories of, like, they've been fighting their whole careers, 25 plus years trying to make change, and then nothing happens. And they're at the end and just can't not wait to retire. What, what do you think a, a healthy and effective police force could look like or would look like? Like, if you were to think back to your police department, completely get rid of it, completely defund it, and then start from, from scratch... How would it be different and and what would it look like? I would shift the focus, the overemphasis on the crime fighting, that warrior fighter mindset to more service oriented. Today I'm coming in and how am I going to be of service? Not coming in and how many warrant arrests am I going to get today? How many tickets am I going to write? How many arrests am I going to get? Like you're the protectors. The black skin that we're in is a threat to the police department, period. And it just wasn't designed to work for us. Martise Gilliam is a fitness entrepreneur and former police officer. He lives in New Jersey. He originally spoke with Ellen McCarthy from The Post. She and our colleague Dan Zak reported a wider story about the experiences of Black police officers across the country. It is a super fascinating read. We'll put a link to that story in the show notes for today's episode, which you can find at postreports.com. now, one more thing. Of all the things that I've been missing during this pandemic summer, restaurants and bars and parties and going to the gym, the thing that I miss most is going to the movies. Welcome to AMC. Before the plot thickens, let's talk safety. But that is probably not going to happen anytime soon. This week, AMC theaters announced that they are postponing their nationwide reopening yet again. And even when movie theaters do eventually reopen, it's hard to imagine what that experience will be like. Now that that's covered, let's find out what's soon to cause sparks at an AMC near you. 
What I think makes movie theaters unique from a lot of forms of entertainment and American public life in general is they really provide an escape. It's a dark room. You're sitting with a lot of strangers. You're watching something that's often fantastical or comedic or animated or in some way diverting you from everyday life. And that's, I think, why we go to the movies. I know it's a a bit of a cliche to say the magic of the movies, but I think there is something transportative and particularly in a world that's so filled with distractions, the idea of being able to kind of remove yourself from from all of those for two hours and get taken somewhere else is is quite a, a special and often remarkable thing. And with COVID over the last four months, we've not had the chance to go to the movies and unfortunately not had the chance to access that kind of escapism that movie theaters can provide. I'm Steve Zeitschik, and I'm a business of entertainment reporter at The Post. So as theaters reopen, managers and owners have to really juggle a lot of concerns. Of course, on the surface, there's the question of disinfecting and social distancing and doing what all businesses have to do right now. They also have to deal with capacity restrictions. A lot of states, that's 25%, 40%, max 50%. They're dealing with a lack of movies. Studios are not putting movies out in any broad way, at least for the next month or month and a half. So that's something else they have to deal with. But maybe the biggest thing they really have to concern themselves with right now is psychological. How do you make consumers feel safe and comfortable at a time when many of them don't? One thing they really have to do is not scare people too much with uh, some of their reopening protocols. And I talked to uh, a number of theater owners, uh, a guy named Chris Johnson, who owns a lot of theaters in the Midwest. And he said, look, if you start putting masks on posters and you start really adding all these layers of security kind of very front and center, uh, then it's going to feel to people like they're checking in for a flight and no one's going to want to come. At the same time, I think you have to be very concerned with not taking it seriously enough and what effect that could have. AMC got into a lot of trouble when uh, they first said they weren't going to require masks. There was a huge backlash, people saying they were going to boycott AMC, and then they reversed course. So right now, I think theaters are trying to navigate that very, very narrow ground between making people feel comfortable, not overwhelming them with safety precautions, but at the same time, really making sure that they impose all the safety restrictions that they need to keep things uh, healthy and running smooth. Steven Zychik writes about the business of entertainment for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The Washington Post is conducting an audience survey for our podcast, and we want to hear from you. To participate, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svarnovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.